You are now listening to the June 16th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, our topics are Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace, and begin our program with Christianese 101. My name is Grace, and I am the host of the Christianese 101 program. One of the things that many Christians do in the morning is QT. There may be some of you listeners out there who may be thinking, what is QT? For the listeners living in Arizona, you may be thinking of the gas station called Quick Trip or QT. However, the QT that we are talking about today stands for quiet time. It means time to meditate quietly on the Word of God. Nowadays, there are many different ways of meditating on the Word of God, and many people are in the habit of doing so. But what exactly is meditation? Generally speaking, if I hear the word meditation, I think of sitting quietly and thinking. Then does biblical meditation mean the same thing? So that is why for today's program, we will learn about meditation. Meditation means to think deeply. The dictionary definition of meditation is to focus one's thoughts on, to reflect on, or ponder over. This is why when we think about meditation, we think of quietly thinking about, and in this case, the Word of God. However, meditating on the Bible does not necessarily mean only one thing. The Hebrew word for meditation is harka. This word is used in the Old Testament about 25 times. Among them, the meditation that we know, meaning quietly thinking in the mind, is used about 6 times out of 25. And as for the other times, it was used to mean to make noise, to speak out. Haka can also sometimes be translated to sigh and to moan. There is one place where the word haga has been translated very strangely. In Isaiah 31, verse 4, I will read it for you. This is what the Lord has said to me. Even though a great lion or a young lion has invoked many shepherds to strike it with his prey and roaring, it will not be astonished by their voice, nor will he surrender by their remorse. The Lord of hosts will come and fight on Mount Zion on its hill. In this verse, the word Haga which means meditation, has been translated as roaring, which does not seem very appropriate. Roar and meditation? Are these two words even connected? Imagine what you just read in Isaiah chapter 31 verse 4, and let's think about it. A young lion who is successful in hunting prepares to feed on its prey by sitting in a place where he can eat and drink water. At this time, the shepherd who guarded the flock Realizing that the lion has taken one of his sheep, asks the surrounding shepherds for help. The shepherds who are asked for help gather one by one with their weapons, and now they join together to attack this lion. But how does this powerful young lion react to the shepherd's voice? The Bible says, even though a great lion or a young lion has invoked many shepherds to strike it with his prey and roaring, it will not be astonished by their voice, 
nor will he surrender by their remorse. That is correct. If the shepherds are so crowded, the lion will not be surprised by their voices, nor will he submit to them. Why? Is it simply because the lion is strong? That is not true. The reason is because the lion is roaring. The reason that the lion roars is because as it roars, it becomes aware of who he is and encourages itself to frighten the enemy. When we have the word of God in our mouth and we are roaring just like the lion, we start to realize who we really are. We are the noble beings who have received a new life through Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And while we are tempted by Satan every single day, we shall not be afraid as we have the word of God in our mouth, roaring away like the lion. Now there is a connection between roaring and meditation on the word of God. While we still view meditation as silently thinking and reflecting on one's own thought, it can also be used in reference to roaring as we use the word of God and constantly keep it in our mouths to defend ourselves against the enemy. How did Jesus overcome the temptations of Satan? He won through God's words, not by physical fighting. Psalm 1 confesses this, Blessed do not follow the schemes of the wicked. Do not stand in the way of sinners, sit at the place of the arrogant, but rejoice in the law of the Lord, meditating on his law day and night. It is not that we should only think of the word of God in our heads, but we should be the ones who reproduce it from our mouths and proclaim it as well as experience the power of the word. This ends our Christianese 101 word study for today, and I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Goodbye.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. There is life and death in our tongues. Words really do matter. You know, the Christian rock band Hawk Nelson has has a a song called Words, and the lyrics go like this. They've made me feel like a prisoner. They've made me feel set free. They've made me feel like a criminal. They've made me feel like a king. They've lifted my heart to places I've never been, and they've dragged me down back to where I began. Words can build you up. Words can break you down, start a fire in your heart, or put it out. Well, today we finish our conversation on what's called trigger number nine, justification. It's inside the larger uh, teaching series called The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. This is part three of three. And in today's podcast, we're going to discuss three things. Number one, how the tongue is never fully tamed. Number two, how blessings and cursing come from the same mouth. And number three, the seriousness of using God's word out of context so that you can continue in your sin. So let's get started with today's lesson. This is Why Words Matter. 
People can tame all kinds of animals, and uh, birds and reptiles and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It's restless and it's evil. It's full of deadly poison. Sometimes, listen to this, sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and then sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessings and cursings come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and my sisters, this, that's not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh and salty water? Does a fig tree produce olives or does a grapevine produce figs? No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. So what's he saying? He's saying, how is it that we can go to church on Sunday morning and we worship Almighty God and we are singing how great is the Lord God? Right? We're singing all these wonderful hymns. We've got our hands raised high and then we get into the car and someone cuts us off. Not even, we're not even out of the parking lot yet. And we cuss the guy that's in front of us. And just 20 minutes ago, I was singing a holy hymn to the Lord God Almighty. Out comes cuss words. Same thing with our hands, right? You see people worshiping, that's great. Sunday night is the most used night for pornography. So we take those same hands and we click the mouse and we shouldn't be doing things that we, uh, we should be doing with those same hands. That's what James is saying here. He's asking us to think because a, a Christian man of integrity produces Christian behavior ultimately. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 12, verse 33. A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. He says, you brood of snakes, how could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart, that's what determines what you say. Whoa. How many times have you guys, something just happens and something just, it just comes out. Your, the anger that you have, it just comes out. You know, it's kind of like when you, you get home from a hard day and, and you, you just want to be left alone when you walk in the door, right? And people have been nipping at you all day and you've just had enough and you just want to be left alone. You open up that door, ah, and there's your wife's cat. <clears throat> you just want to kick the cat, right? The cat didn't do anything. I'm just, I'm learning, I'm in a new season of, of my life, guys, to where God is purging some stuff out of me that I, I'm, I'm just disgusted with myself that's still in there. Some of the things that go through my, my head and how I'll get upset, like, whoa, where is that coming from? That's deep-seated sin that just continues to work its way out. You guys get that? I would say if you even look at the Apostle Paul, and look at some of the things that he, he said through Scripture, especially when he was, well, before he was Paul. Actually, you look at Saul when he was, when, before he met the Lord. He was doing all of the going around, making sure that these Christians knew what was going to happen, right? And yet at the end of the day, he called himself the chief of all sinners. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty awakening thing to realize. I would encourage you to go, okay. This is just something else that I need to cling to Jesus about, is my mouth. Pastor Tommy Nelson with Denton Bible Church, he tells this story. He said, I was baptized in 
he immerses him in water and he brings this gentleman back up and all of a sudden he spits some water like that and he's like what'd you do that for he said i just wanted to make sure that my tongue got saved <laughs> i remember a, a drastic change in my language when i got saved anybody else i used to cuss like a sailor the f word it was my favorite word nobody else in here drastic change in your language I remember hearing bedside conversions of pastors going, and this person was getting ready to, to die. They would accept the Lord, and the family's like, this is never going to work. This guy's not going to accept Christ. He does, and he lives for a few more hours, and people will go, wait a second. Have you noticed that Grandpa hasn't said an F word for the last two hours since he's been saved? And the family's like, that's a miracle. That's the Lord. But I, I would say that this is just another part for us really to cling to Jesus on this stuff, to go, I've got my work cut out for me. But knowing that you can't do it by yourself either. Verse 35, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. And I tell you this, you're going to have to give an account on judgment day for every idle word that you speak. The words will either acquit you or condemn you. Idle is this idea. Anybody have a different translation on that? Let's, let's take a look. Empty words. Careless. That's another one I'll pull up right now. Yeah, every careless word marked by a lack of attention. So it's this idea you're just running your mouth and you're not really thinking about what you're saying. Let me make a transition to another level of justification for tonight. We've been talking about how words matter, how uh, our tongue matters, the excuses that we have, uh, the excuses that for our sin, it matters. And the bottom line is that we're not going to have any more excuses. We're not going to be able to justify our, our sin, our pornography habit, uh, or any of that stuff when we're standing face-to-face -face with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not going to be any talk to figure out what the definition of is is. There's not going to be a discussion on whether or not masturbation is a sin. You know what I mean? Um, Proverbs 10.19, let me just read some of these uh, to you. Proverbs 10.19 and I believe these are from the, the New Living Translation. It says, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. Proverbs twelve thirteen: The wicked are trapped by their own words, but the godly escape such trouble. Proverbs eighteen twenty one: The tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk, they're going to reap the consequences. In Proverbs 21, 23, watch your tongue, keep your mouth shut, and you're going to stay out of trouble. Now, in, in all seriousness, there are some of you tonight in here, right now, who use Scripture out of context with your wife, specifically, and with your children. You are beating your family with God's Word. You're supposed to be lifting them up for 
for the glory of God, but you're using God's word for the sole purpose of getting what you want at home. And you need to hear tonight that when you do this, you're considered a false teacher and you preach a message that you don't understand to simply justify your sin. And this, this guys, is where justification gets really serious. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. And we're going to go down to verse 14. But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. In this way, they're going to bring sudden destruction on themselves. See, many will follow their evil teaching and their shameful immorality. And because of these false teachers, the way of truth, it's going to be slandered. In their greed, they're going to make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction, it's not going to be delayed. Verse 10, he, that's God, he is especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire and who despise authority. That verse 10 there is so critical, gentlemen, that when you are acting out in sin, and you take your Bible, and you beat your wife down and say, Woman, you have to submit to me. I want you to hear right now as your friend, she doesn't have to submit to you because you're not submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Ephesians 5 works. She submits to you because you look like Jesus. And if you're making her uncomfortable with some of the sexual things that you've seen in pornography and you want to act them out with your wife, well, she has a right to be uncomfortable with that. At that point, her body is not yours. It's the Lord's. He is especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire, who despise authority. Do you despise authority? Have you called your partner and and talked about what you're wanting to do and why you're beating your family with God's word instead of lifting them up with it? Peter continues, he says, These people are proud and they're arrogant, just like you. They're daring even to scoff at supernatural beings without so much as trembling. These false teachers are like unthinking animals, creatures of instinct, and they are born to be caught and destroyed. They scoff at things they don't understand. When we do that with God's word, we do not understand what we're doing. And like animals, they will be destroyed. Their destruction is their reward for the harm that they've done. And they love to indulge in evil pleasures in broad daylight. They are a disgrace and a stain among you. They delight in deception, even as they eat with you in fellowship meals. They commit adultery with their eyes. And their desire for sin is never satisfied. Lust is never satisfied, guys. They lure unstable people into sin and they are well trained in greed and they live under God's curse. This is a false teacher. What you say matters. 
how you justify your sin matters. Justification keeps you inside the spiral. Confession allows you to exit the spiral. Those are sobering words from the Apostle Paul today as we close out this podcast. And if you are a wife listening, I want to I chat with you specifically on this subject of repentance and your husband using God's word to beat you and your family down instead of lifting you up. If I had to guess, I, I would bet that there's a good possibility that you're listening to this podcast because you're hurting and you're looking for specific answers. And I'm guessing that you're, you're listening to this and your husband is not. Now, if, if your husband is listening or you guys are listening together, that's a very good sign. For those of you who are praying for the Lord to change your husband, that he would repent, I would like to offer just a few suggestions. Number one, obviously, keep praying for your husband, but then let him go. Give him and all of his behaviors over to the Lord. You can't change him. And the Lord is not going to force him to change. Part of this journey is that your husband, he must surrender and submit willfully. You don't want to be the referee standing between your husband and God. Number two, I want you to take care of yourself. That you desperately need a group of women who understand where you are and can help process this pain that you're going through. You can't do this alone. You can't. Reading books and listening to podcasts is one thing, but healing begins in godly community. And number three, schedule a time to meet with a pastoral or Christian counselor who has specific training, specific experience with sexual sin. This is so critical to work out the very specific issues and the questions that you have yourself. It's crucial that you also protect yourself physically and and protect yourself sexually. Uh, especially if you think that your husband is having an affair. If that means getting tested for STDs, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, it's imperative that you do that. Now, a word of caution as you think about these things that we're discussing today. As you begin to make changes, your husband may become angry and upset. And this is normal. His sin, his pride is going to rise up out of him because he's starting to lose control or this illusion of control that he thought he had in the first place. Proverbs twenty two twenty four says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. The NIV says, Don't make friends with a hot-tempered man. Don't associate with one who is easily angered. Lastly, if he's not taking control in areas like he should, for example, protecting all of your computers, your tablets, and your phones with internet filtering software, uh, some type of program to block pornography, I, I would like to encourage you to be proactive in this area as well. Thank you for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, you're invited to our weekly community group. It's a grace group. It's for men and women, husbands and wives, single, together, divorced, everybody's welcome. And you're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. We're in Building A, Room 301. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. You can email me your questions at DustinDanielsRadio.com. 1 Corinthians 4.20 reads, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. The power that's the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I love you and I look forward to our time again on Monday.
You can listen to Heart and Soul Gospel Broadcasts through apps or podcasts on your smartphone. If you're an iPhone user, go to the App Store and download Heart and Soul. If you possess an Android phone, you can download it in the Play Store in the same way. Podcast users can download by searching Heart and Soul Broadcasts in the search box. It also provides you with distinct broadcasts for children's program. By searching Heart and Soul Kids in the podcast, you can directly log on to the broadcast for children's program. For more information, please call and tag the office at 602-866-8999. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Resurrection Power, based on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 19 and 20. Actually catching Paul in the middle of this huge prayer, kind of a one long run-on sentence in the Bible here. If you were taking an English course, you would get docked for this run-on sentence. I would just say, hey, it's in the Bible. I, I can do this. It's, you know. So we're catching him in the middle of his prayer. So I want to paraphrase, kind of jumping in, I'll paraphrase uh, the beginning of verse 19 this way. And I pray that you will be given insight into, and then you catch it, what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, so that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul uses six words when he refers to the power of God. And let's look at verses 19 and 20 again. Look at it again. I want you to see six words that he uses to talk about the power of God. And I pray that you will be given insight into, now look for the words, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. He's saying, I pray that you will understand the power that is at work within you. It's going to help us if we just take a minute and we look at the meaning of the words that he uses to describe the power of God. And I ran up by the gang last night, and I said, would you guys, like, what do you think about me sharing what the words mean? I mean, it is, you know, and they thought it was great. So Saturday night is kind of the, you know experiment, and if they say a thumbs up, then I go ahead and do it. So they like to, to know, because I think it's just going to help us to know what the power of God is like. Paul says that God's power is over the top. Now, you used to take notes. I would encourage you to take notes. It makes me happy when you take notes, <laughs> all right? And I know that it's, you don't remember things super well if you don't take a note or something. But Paul says that God's power is over the top. Actually, that word immeasurable, which some of your Bibles say surpassing, surpassing greatness, right? The word immeasurable is hyperbolon. Now, that, I'm going to throw out some Greek, not to awe you. Look, I couldn't even pronounce it right, though I understand Greek. But it hyperbolon, think of a ball, 
and think of hyper. This is a ball that you were throwing and you were throwing it so far beyond that it's like, let's say it's out of the ballpark if you're playing baseball and you hit it out of the ballpark. This is the word. So he's saying, I'm praying that you're going to understand the over the top. It could mean that throwing it too far greatness of God. You got it? So that's the first thing he says. Then he says, he goes on to pray to say that God's power is mega power. Because that next word where he says the immeasurable greatness, the word there in Greek is megathos. Now that sounds like what? Mega. And he says, I'm praying that you understand the over-the-top, out-of-the-ballpark, mega power of God. And it's translated greatness here. And then he writes, it's as if he's grasping for words. See, you know, how can I describe God's surpassing greatness? There's only so many words in your language, right? That's why if you're bilingual or trilingual, you know, and you've got a bigger vocabulary, some of us, all we know is English, and some of us don't know that very well. And, you know, we have a limited vocabulary. So Paul is pulling these words out, looking at the text. He could have said, I want you to understand what is his power toward us who believe. Or he could have just said, what is the greatness of his power toward us who believe. But instead he says, what is the immeasurable, which means what? Out of the ballpark, right? Am I holding? I played baseball in years, you know, I don't know. I want it out of the ballpark. Mega power of God. So, I mean, it's huge, grand terms that he's using. He goes on to say that God's power is like dynamite. He says, the immeasurable, just keep looking, will you? The immeasurable greatness, mega, of his, and that next word, power, is dunamis. Say dunamis. Dunamis. And that's where we get our word directly. We get our word dynamite, dynamo, and it's talking about explosive power. And so he's saying God's power is explosive power. It's translated power. And then he also goes on, he say, the immeasurable greatness, so over the top, out of the ballpark, mega power, explosive power of God toward us who believe according to the working. Now this word working is a word energia, and it sounds just like what? Energy. And it's atomic energy, okay? It's not just, you know, it's, it's this power energy. So we saying God's power is atomic-like and then he says, look at the impact, he says, of his great might. The word great is a word that's talking about something having an impact. Like if you were a meteor and you're hitting the moon and you're making a crater, okay? He says, God's word makes an impact, okay? It's powerful. And when it hits, it makes an impact. And then he says, his great might, the power of God is mighty. And this word is simply talking about being stronger than anybody physically. Nobody can beat you. So, God's power is over the top, mega, dynamite, energetic, impactful, mighty, and stronger than anybody, Superman kind of strength, all right? That's God's power. And as Paul was thinking about the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us, the first thing he thinks about, it's like Paul saying, Lord, I want them to understand your power. Lord, how could I, what am I going to use? What's the illustration of your power? And the very first thing that comes to his mind is Christ's resurrection. 
and the power that it took to raise Christ from the dead. Look again at verse 20. And I pray that you will be given insight into what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So the big example here, you want to see the mighty power of God? Then it's when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. You know, when I see the huge power lines, you know, like if you were at Hoover Dam, and you see the big power lines that are carrying the power from the generators that the electricity is generated from at the dam, you are following those, and, and uh, you see them going across the country, and then finally some of them coming into Phoenix. When I see those power lines, I think, oh, there's power. Or when I drive by a nuclear power plant, I think, whoa, you know, that's dangerous. No, I think there's power, right? But if you were to take all that power and somehow we could harness all that energy and we could, all the energy of the world, all the power stations, and we were to somehow hook it up to someone who had died because we want to see them come back to life and somehow we're able to attach all that power to them and then somebody flips the switch, is that going to cause them to come back to life? It'll kill them. It'll kill them again. You know what I'm saying? It's not going to cause them to come back to life. You know, the only way somebody can come back to life is through supernatural power. Amen? And this is the point, the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is at work with you, in you. And it's an amazing thing to look about at. Look at verse uh, He says, I pray that you might know the power that is at work within us who believe. That's verse 19. And it's the same power, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is crazy. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, Paul says, is at work in you. All right? Okay, I've had a week to think about this. And I'm still just blown away. I don't have an English word for what I am. You know, I just, the same power that raised Jesus three days, he was dead, the third day he rose from the dead, the very same power is ours right now. Somebody say amen to that. I'm not saying that you understand it, but I'm saying amen. God's immeasurable, great power. Kent Hughes, one of my favorite Bible commentators, he says, just as the cross is the highest expression of God's love, he says, so the resurrection is the ultimate display of his power. I'm going to say something I do not want you to misunderstand. So when I say the first part of it, you don't stop listening. When I say the first part of it, then you wait for me to explain what I mean, okay? The first thing I'm going to say is, the death of Jesus does not save us. Don't run away. I'm not a heretic. I want you to hear me through. How many are going to listen? You're going to keep listening. The death of Jesus doesn't save us. It's the resurrection of Jesus that saves. If he stayed dead, we're not saved. Yes, we need an atoning sacrifice. Yes, somebody had to die for our sins. And his sacrifice was complete. It is finished, right? His sacrifice was complete, but if he didn't rise from the dead, we are lost. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that. 
And Romans chapter 4, the last verse, I think it is, it says that Jesus was raised for our justification. So why are we justified? Because Jesus, what? Rose from the dead. And that was because of the mighty power of God. So you don't need to go around telling people, Jesus' death didn't save us, and they're not going to get it, okay? But you guys do. He, it was both. He needed to die. The Messiah had to die, but the Messiah had to be raised from the dead, or he couldn't be a savior. Our sins wouldn't be satisfied. The resurrection is the receipt that everything was paid in full, all right? So how does this affect our lives? How does it benefit us? I know. You know, when we look at spiritual truth, you know, it's okay. We say, well, what does this mean to me? How does it benefit me? Well, it means that nothing that you ever face is beyond God's power. Nothing that you ever face is beyond God's power to help you. Now, when you look at the power of God toward us, that is like the great power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, we see that this power saved us. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everybody who believes it says that in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. The gospel is the power and that word power is dunamis and we know what that is already. Dynamo, dynamite. So what is the power of God? Why did we see people get saved this last weekend? Because the gospel is the what? Power of God. Nothing else is. It's the gospel that God draws people to, and it's the word of the gospel that saves people. It's the word of the cross that saves people, okay? And so the gospel is the power of God, and God, that very dynamo power of Jesus' resurrection is what comes to somebody, and they are saved. Hell cannot keep someone from being saved when they make that decision for Christ. Yeah, but if you only knew how bad I was, if you only knew what I'm doing, God couldn't save me. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ blasts through all of that. So you're a bad person. That's why Jesus died. He didn't die for good people because there aren't any, you know? The power that raised Jesus from the dead is able to save you. Nothing can place you beyond the immeasurable greatness of that power. Nothing can put you far away. God's power breaks through. I just love it. And then the power of God sanctifies us. You know, as believers, as Christians, we, we have this. We say it's, he saves us and he sanctifies us. The word sanctify means to make holy. It means, let's break it down even more, to make us more like Jesus. And so the power of God, that same awesome resurrection power, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, makes you more like Jesus. You have that power with you right now to live differently. And if you've believed in Jesus for eternal life, the power that Paul is talking about is yours. Often Christians pray, Lord, give me power. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with that, and there's a place for that, and, but we're not talking about that right now. This is power you already have, all right? You don't pray for this. This is like as soon as you were believed, the resurrection power saved you, and it's yours. I just can't get over that. One of the things Paul asked that God to do is for us believers to understand and have insight into the power that he has given to us. You can know and experience this power. Look at, hold your place 
here in Ephesians, but go to the right, just a few pages to the book of Philippians. Paul wrote this letter to the church in a town called, a city called Philippi, and he wrote to the believers there. And uh, in chapter 3 and verse 10, and this was a long letter. When Paul wrote it, he didn't write, and chapter 3, verse 1, it was just a long letter. It's been divided up. You know, we can find our places easier. But in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, listen to what Paul says. He says, that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his, what? Resurrection, and may share in his sufferings to become like him in his death. He wanted to know Jesus better and experience the power of his resurrection. The New Living Translation translates it this way. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. It's not like, well, that was the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's just for that. No, Paul says, I want to experience the power that raised him from the dead. The message paraphrases it by saying, I gave up all that inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally and experience his resurrection power. God's power is yours, and God's power is working in you, and you can see life change and new habits, and you can have victory. You already have all the power you need. And most of the failure we experience in our life with Christ is a failure to realize the power of God that he has given us in our failure to use it. Paul says, I pray that you might understand this. Paul also reminds us that the power of God, this mighty power of God that is our power, this is the power that exalted Jesus. He says, we keep running back in the book of Ephesians to, you know, the top of verse 19, but I want to keep us hearing it. The same power of God that raised him from the dead is the power that exalted him. Look at verse 19, and I pray that you will be given insight into what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might so that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and, what gang, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The same power seated Jesus Christ at God's right hand. Power of God raised Jesus from the dead, and the power of God exalted Jesus. Uh, when Jesus was brought before, it's called the Sanhedrin. It was a Jewish kind of religious supreme court just before his crucifixion, he was asked by the high priest some questions. He wouldn't answer them. And that was fulfilling the scripture that says the Messiah would be quiet like a sheep is before its shearers. He would not answer a word. So Jesus was fulfilling that prophecy. But finally, the high priest, in frustration, he says this. The high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God... Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus replied at that point. He replied and he said, you've said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
There's going to come a time the book of Revelation says when the people who crucified Jesus, these people will be raised just before Jesus comes so that they'll be able to see what Jesus said was true. That's going to be a crazy thing going on for them. And 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he ascended into heaven where he is currently seated at God's right hand. To be at the right hand of a king was considered a position of honor, a position of victory, a position of high esteem and favor. In heaven, this position belongs to Jesus. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. I was reading in my New Testament, and I noticed that in the preaching of the early church, those early sermons that they would preach, like in the book of Acts, that over and over they would talk about how Christ died, he was buried, he rose again, but then they would always emphasize, and he's seated at the right hand of God. In other words, it's done, and now he is seated at God's right hand. The only, I wrote down the, uh, I see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 times at least where the Bible says he's seated at the right hand of God. Kind of important for us to know. Uh, There's only one time where you read that Jesus stands at the right hand of God, and you know when that was. It was when Stephen, the first martyr, was going to be stoned. They were getting ready to stone him to death, and Stephen said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is what I think happened. You know, whenever a child of God is being treated like that, Jesus doesn't sit by. Jesus stood up. What are you doing to my kid? What are you doing to my child? But he's seated at the right hand of God, and the Bible says that he's praying for us too, that he always prays for us. Jesus is always praying for you. Sometimes it's just a comfort me to, to think, you know, I don't know how to pray, Lord, but you're praying for me, and your prayers are perfect. Amen. This means we can take every problem to Jesus. He's seated at the right hand. It also means that we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate is a defense attorney. Not that God has to be convinced that you're okay, but the Bible says you have an adversary, the devil, who is accusing you before God day and night. He is constantly accusing you of the things that you've done that are wrong. Of course, he doesn't mention that he's the one who tempted you, right? But he just points at you and constantly accuses you. And the Bible says, if we say we have no sin, we are liars. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, uh, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then 1 John 2, 1, He says, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you do not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate that is one who stands with us, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. So we have right now, seated at the right hand of God, one who says, shut up, paraphrase, one who says, shut up, Satan, I have redeemed these, these are my children, and Jesus' mighty power that is yours is protecting you. His power is protecting you. I think it's very clear and implied in our text right now that the mighty power of God enabled Jesus to defeat death, amen? 
This, of course, gives us the benefit of eternal life and freedom from the fear of death. And we talked about that at length last week. But I do have to remind you of what, what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. <laughs> and then I don't know what Paul's attitude when he wrote this was, but death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I don't know if he was saying it that way. But he goes on to say, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no death for a Christian. There is no separation from God. Remember, death simply means to separate. Death for believers, a change of address. Death for believers, walking through a door, and immediately we are with Jesus. Because of the power of God, Jesus overcame death, and to be absent from our body means to be present with the Lord. To depart is to be instantly with Christ. Hooray. Amen. The power of God also, power of God defeated the devil. I love it. Look, it says, let's read on in verse 21. It goes on to talk about the power of God and, and that we share this very same power. It says that Jesus has been seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places. And then verse 21 Far above, Jesus is seated in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The Bible teaches that there is a very real devil, and none of us have to be convinced of that. And this really real devil, there is a spiritual realm that we cannot see. There's an invisible world, and there is battle and warfare going on right now. And this verse is telling us that Satan's kingdom is very well organized. It tells us right now, and it doesn't exactly tell us what it means, but it tells us that there are rulers and authorities and powers and dominions. And this is talking about demonic powers. Because there are other scriptures that tie into this that, that let us know that this kind of thing are, is talking about Satan's demonic kingdom. Now, we have an enemy who hates us. One Bible scholar reminds us Satan and his hordes are real. They hate us. They hate our faith. They hate our worship. They hate our marriage. They hate our children. They hate our ministry. But he goes on to say, if you want to know experientially the know what verse 19 means, if you want to know what Paul's prayer is and have it answered in your life, that you will know what the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, then wake up to the demonic battle that rages for your soul, your marriage, your children, your ministry every single day. I want you to know that the reason why Satan doesn't wipe you out right now is because that immeasurable, great power of God that we talked about at the very beginning is yours. Right now, you are not overcome and squashed by Satan because the resurrection power of Jesus is yours and it is like a force field keeping the enemy from destroying you, all right? You have that. Yeah, you go, but, but still, I seem to be, you know, evil things, bad things are happening. You know what? You have no clue 
what would happen if the resurrection power of Jesus was not around you? And nothing comes your way that isn't father-filtered, okay? No temptation, trial, testing comes to you except as is allowed by God, all right? So, and there's a reason that Father would allow that, and he always gives you his strength and power. He wouldn't allow it if it was going to crush you. But see, if we could see this invisible realm, we might be freaked out at first, but then we'd say, wow, the, the power of God is protecting me. I thank God for that. How about you guys? Praise the Lord for that. It's been said, sin is defeated at the cross, yet sin remains to be fought. Satan was defeated at the cross, yet Satan remains to be fought. And for this fight, may God answer Paul's prayer in our lives. May we know the power of God towards us who believe. Resurrection power to live and die for the glory of Christ, amen. And God, through his power, has given Jesus rule over everything. Look at verse 22. It goes on to say that God put all things under his what? Feet. Jesus is not only alive forevermore, he's reigning forevermore. He's reigning. The message of the early church was that Christ was resurrection and reigning with the Father. He fulfilled Psalm 110, verse 1 which says that the Messiah would do this. The Lord, that's God, says to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, I love archaeology. I love the ancient, studying the ancient world. Some people are like, you know, I like it, though, because it, you know, it dovetails with studying the Bible a lot. But what you'll see in, in some ancient pictures and writings but in the ancient pictures, you'll see a king either seated and sometimes standing, but the enemy king will be bound and will be on his knees and his neck will be on the ground and the king, the conquering king, would put his foot on that conquered king's neck. And that showed that he had conquered him. I mean, it means he could kill him, right? Just squish his neck, break his neck. And it says that Jesus is reigning until all his enemies are under his feet. You understand that? And so the day is coming when every single enemy, and Jesus already won the battle, but there's these terrorist groups, you know, until, you know, his kingdom is set up, they're fighting, you know, and Jesus says, but every single one of those is going to be under my feet. Because my name and my kingdom is far above any name and any kingdom in this age and the age to come. And the mighty power of God has made Jesus head of the church. Look at the second part of verse 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the head of the church. Now, I in no way imply that Jesus is not complete in and of himself, but every head needs a body, right? And I believe Jesus wants us, we're called the body of Christ, because Jesus isn't here. Jesus went into heaven, right? But he says, while I'm gone, I want you to do what I would do. Remember how Jesus, his hands would be stretched out to bless people? 
And to heal people, Jesus says, okay, I'm not here, but you're going to be my hands. You're going to be my smile. You're going to speak my words. You're going to go to those places where there's need, like I would go. You're my body. You're going to the heart for people that I have. And so Christ is the head, and the head directs the body, right? And so we, we as his church, and I'm talking about buildings, the church is not a building It's a meeting place. We're the church. You're the church. And every one of us has a place in his body, and every single one of us is important. I don't want to lose my hand. I want it to be complete. And Jesus wants his body on earth to do what he would do if he was on earth himself. And actually, what what is happening with his body on earth right now is, is we can do a whole lot more than he could just being at one place all the time, because his body is worldwide, right? And he is the head of the church. It's not a pastor. It's not, you know, some some executive someplace. Jesus is the head of the church. Hooray. Warren Wearsby tells of the late wealthy newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst, who was like mega wealthy. I mean, this dude could have anything he wants. And he also was a great lover and collector of art and sculpture, you know, everything beautiful like that. And he had the money to get whatever he wanted, wherever it was in the world. And he had read about a piece of art, and he wanted it. And so he sent his rep out, this guy who bought things for him, and he says, I want you to go get that for me. I want it. I want it in my collection. So... His rep goes, and, you know, this is before internet and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So he's searching, he's calling, he's trying to make, you know, contacts with people and try his best. He didn't see it, and then he thought, well, wait a minute. Let me look at our catalog. So he looks, and sure enough, Hearst already had it in his collection. He didn't realize what he had. And you know, for us, gang, that's the way it is sometimes. We just don't realize what we have. We think, God, give me power. And God is saying, you already have the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You have that same power. You have that same power to comfort you, to defend you, to help you live differently. The same power to understand that Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and he's praying for you and he has things under his control and someday, you know where Jesus reigns? The Bible says you're going to reign too. I want you to just think, are you experiencing God's mighty power to overcome temptation and live a holy life? If not, this is what you want to do. You just want to pray like Paul is praying He's not saying, God, give them power. He's saying, Lord, open their eyes so they'll understand the immeasurable greatness of this power towards them according to the working of your might when you raised Jesus Christ from the dead and you exalted him, you enthroned him far above all the demonic powers and name that is every named, ever named, and you put everything under his feet and gave him, made him head over the church. Lord, help them realize that power is theirs. I would never dare think that could be mine unless the book told me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just, our prayer is like, yay. 
Thank you. Thank you for this power. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that when you saved us by your strong power, you share this with us. We can live differently. We can be confident. I want to pray for brothers and sisters who just really need to hear the word. For our new brothers and sisters who are hearing things like this for the first time. Pray they wouldn't be overwhelmed by everything, but there's something they're going to walk out of here with that is going to just stick to them like Velcro sticks to Velcro. We thank you, Father, for giving us Jesus. We thank you for his resurrection power. And we're thanking you through Jesus' name who always lives and prays for us. And everybody said, amen.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.